message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn it to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about Coca-Cola. A story about Coca-Cola. Second, be listening for which chapter in Genesis does Abraham believe? In which chapter does Abraham express belief? And third, be listening for what Jesus said while he was on the cross. What did Jesus say while he was on the cross? Well, this morning we're jumping back into our spring sermon series looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And Paul wrote this letter to a group of churches that he had planted. And after planting these churches, he wanted to see these people that he loved grow into gospel maturity as they continued to rely on Jesus alone for spiritual growth. And through this letter, Paul really goes out of his way to remind the Galatians that they already have all that they'll ever need if they have faith in Jesus. This was a crucial message for Paul to press home because you might remember that false teachers had come behind Paul trying to teach the Galatians that they needed to adopt certain Jewish uh, customs and traditions if they really wanted to belong to the family of God. These false teachers were trying to convince the Galatians that they needed to engage the works of the law like circumcision and dietary restrictions and keeping Torah if they wanted to be right with God. And since these false teachers wanted to add heavy burdens and restrictions onto the Galatians, it triggered Paul to write a letter, hoping to defend the Galatians' freedom in Christ. And he's so forceful with his defense of the gospel, so explicit that all we need is Jesus, that it can sometimes leave us wondering, well, what about the law? Does Paul just disregard God's commands? Has he become anti-law? Well, it's not an unusual form of pushback when someone is proclaiming the gospel of free grace. After all, the message of the gospel is so extraordinary with its message of God's free love and forgiveness that it can seem like we've moved into hedonistic territory, that we've abandoned the rules. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh minister and medical doctor, put it when he said this, if your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, or anti-law, you're not preaching the gospel of free grace of God and Jesus Christ. The charge of being anti-law, the charge of being hedonistic, just goes with the territory of preaching God's full and free grace. And we certainly see Paul preaching the gospel so boldly on the pages of his letter that he's opened himself up to the charge of being anti-law even though soon we'll learn that's not really the case at all. Remember, chapters 1 and 2 are considered the autobiographical portion of this letter where Paul uses his life experiences to highlight that Jesus is all that's needed for a relationship with God. 
And now in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is going to begin to explain the theology of the gospel more in depth, using characters and images from the Old Testament to make his points. And we'll see this morning that Paul begins with a rebuke. You'll notice right off the bat in our passage that Paul is upset. He uses very strong personal language to address a group of people that he loves. Remember last week we saw that the Galatians were in danger of nullifying the grace of God. Paul makes the case that if they could save themselves, then why did Jesus even have to die on the cross? And he picks back up with the same line of reasoning this morning at a loss for how the Galatians could buy into such nonsense. To see what Paul says, you follow along as I read from Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Well, you've likely experienced what making a change can do to certain experiences in life. Sometimes change can be good. It's welcomed. Change can enhance our experiences. But there are other times in life where a change can make things worse. You wish you could go back to what you have left behind. Change can bring disappointment. One change that some of you likely remember is when Coca-Cola decided that they were going to change their ingredients. It was April of 1985 and Coca-Cola, the iconic soda brand with a worldwide following, decided that they wanted to replace their original formula with what they were calling New Coke. And this new drink could have saved the company millions of dollars by cutting back on some of the costlier ingredients, but it was a complete failure. The change to New Coke, it sparked outrage across the nation. Many people decided to boycott the company. It was so bad that it took the company just 79 days to realize they had made a monumental mistake. Less than three months after rolling out new Coke, the company announced that they would transition back to their original formula. And you might be interested to know that the secret formula, it's really a secret. The formula that made Coca-Cola a multi-billion dollar company is held in a 10-foot tall vault in Atlanta, Georgia. It's said that only two executives in the company know the secret formula and they're sworn to secrecy. But the original formula... It's a great phrase. And depending on what you have, you want to be careful not to mess with an original formula, especially if it's important, especially if it works. 
I mean, it can be detrimental to change the original formula, to mess with the secret sauce. You can think about how athletes who are excelling in their sport, they begin tinkering with their shot or their pitch or their swing, and it ruins the success they had. You can think of restaurants that you once enjoyed that decide to mix it up with their food or their atmosphere, and all of a sudden, it's no longer your favorite place to eat. You can think of business leaders that make significant, unneeded changes that drive customers away. Sometimes we can't just leave well enough alone. And it's not unlike the issue that Paul is addressing with the Galatians in the passage that we just read. For Paul, the original formula, the foundational ingredient, the thing that could not be changed was the fact that the gospel, his message of good news was based on faith alone in Christ alone. That was the original formula. For Paul, that all you had to do to receive the benefits of the gospel was to hear with faith. He says as much in verse 2. Basically, Paul says, you've got two options. It's an either-or proposition here, guys. You can either try to belong to the family of God through works of the law. That's one option. Or you can belong to the family of God by hearing with faith. And hearing with faith was foundational for Paul. It was his original formula, you might say. And you can make lots of different decisions around the original formula. People can have their preferences on lots of smaller issues, but change the original formula and it is over. It's not the same product. It doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't bring the same freedom and joy. That's what was at stake according to Paul. The false teachers who followed Paul around and troubled the church, they were known as Judaizers, and they wanted to add their own finishing touches on the work of Jesus. They taught that it was okay to believe in Jesus, but that you also needed to add observance of Jewish law to really belong. You had to add the works of the law to the finished work of Jesus to be made right with God. And knowing how dangerous this teaching was, In realizing that the Galatians were buying into this false teaching, Paul writes and lets the Galatians have it in our passage. It's obvious that Paul is deeply frustrated with the Galatians. He calls them foolish. He describes them as having a spell cast over them. And he uses a series of rhetorical questions to drive his point home. He says, if you came to Jesus by simple hearing with faith, then why are you trying to change the original formula? Do you think that a race you couldn't even begin in your own strength can now be finished in your own strength? No way. Look, if we were going to simplify things this morning, we'd have to say that the Judaizers are teaching a message of legalism to the Galatians. And legalism is a false teaching that says we can add to our salvation. That we can earn God's love and acceptance with good behavior. And the Judaizers are teaching that God's favor can be attained as they adhere to Jewish customs and traditions. That continued relationship with God can be maintained as they obey the law. As they engage what Paul refers to as works of the law. Now, why would the Galatians buy into this false teaching? What's going on here? Why would they want to mess with the original formula? 
Well, they do it for the same exact reasons that you and I are prone to do it in our own lives. We tend to gravitate towards legalism because it's easier. It's neater. It provides a lot of clarity to life, doesn't it? That's why we do it. I mean, we are moving to the path of least resistance when we adopt a legalistic mindset. It's easier. We quietly convince ourselves that the original formula, it's not stringent enough. It isn't clear enough. We need some parameters around here after all. I mean, the gospel message leaves too much up to personal choice. And that can make us uncomfortable. We'd much rather have tight rules that let us know exactly who is in and who is out. Rules that make us feel better about ourselves. Or at least some rules that offer the potential to earn God's favor in some small way. If we're honest, we'd have to admit that we're not big fans of how free the gospel is for anyone and everyone. After all, what about those people that don't really deserve it? What about those people that are worse off than me? The first thing you learned in economics class is probably there's no such thing as a free lunch. And it's the mentality we bring into our relationship with God all the time. Just like the Galatians, we gravitate to legalism because it provides clarity. It makes things black and white, which relieves the anxiety that comes along with living into Christian liberty. In the Judaizers, the false teachers, they gravitated to legalism and taught it because they wanted to keep their power. They wanted to maintain their way of life and their cultural heritage. They wanted to maintain their sense of respectability and prestige. Have you ever thought that we need some more rules around here to make things better? What we really need is just some more rules, some more parameters. That would fix some things. Now, you got to know rules aren't negative in and of themselves. We need them if we're going to live in an ordered society or community. We'd all say that. But we go too far when we require adherence to those rules in order to be loved by God in order to belong to the community, in order to be adopted into the family of God. The Galatians, they were willing to change the original formula. They were willing to add works of the law to the finished work of Jesus. They were slipping into legalism. They thought that it was great that Jesus got them started on the Christian journey, but now they believe that it's up to them and their adherence to the law to make progress on the Christian journey. They believed that they could make progress in their own flesh and their own strength with their own works. They believed that Jesus got them in, but now in order to stay in the community, they needed to pay their dues or their membership might be revoked. And like us, they are prone to believe that Jesus gets them started. He brings our account up to zero. Then it's up to us to start making hay. Up to us to start making deposits into that account with our own good works. Look, in our life, this sometimes looks like making promises to God. You've done this. After you've blown it, after you've done what you promised you would never do again, whether it be anger or lust or cutting corners, we look at ourselves and promise that beginning today, maybe tomorrow, I will never do that again. And we're basically trying to move forward in our flesh in that moment, trying to walk with Jesus in our own strength. How else do we slip into the same mentality? Well, a good question to ask would be, what do you need? What do you need? 
What does someone need to remain faithful in the Christian life? I think we'd all agree that we need Jesus, but what do we add to him? What are the things, even the good things, the good things that we require of ourselves and others to prove that they really belong? Maybe it's that you need Jesus and to be engaged in the public school system because after all, Jesus has called us to be salt and light. Maybe it's that you need Jesus and to give a certain amount of your resources to Christian causes. Maybe it's you need Jesus and to make sure that you're supporting the right American political candidate. Maybe it's you need Jesus and to make sure that your moral records stay spotless. What do you need to be a Christian? To walk faithfully on the Christian journey? What do you need? Well, a good way to answer that question also is to consider what did you have or what did you believe before you were a believer? Before Jesus found you, what did you have and what did you believe? Did God save you before you had all your theological ducks in a row? Probably. Did he save you before you became convicted about your political positions? Probably. You might have been all over the map when Jesus found you. Did he save you before you got your moral life together? We would all say yes, amen. And if that's the case, then what makes you think these things could earn his acceptance and love now? That's the case that Paul is making to the Galatians in our passage. If God brought you in based on grace, if you started through simple faith, then what makes you think you're earning more acceptance and love with your behaviors now? What makes you think you can now stay in God's good graces through your moral efforts and good works? Paul reminds the Galatians that they already had all they needed. What was it they needed? Well, he touches on it in verse 1 when he reminds the Galatians that it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's a strange statement. They didn't actually see Jesus on the cross. But when Paul came to plant the Galatian church, he described Jesus and his work and his death very vividly for the Galatians. Paul painted a metaphorical picture of Jesus through his preaching ministry. And it's all the Galatians need. They have already seen all that they're ever going to need when it comes to walking faithfully in the Christian life. Jesus and him crucified, which you'll remember in 1 uh, Corinthians, is the very thing that Paul committed to proclaim wherever he went. Jesus and him crucified. That was his main message. And like we just said, Paul is presenting the Galatians with two options. You can either have the work of Christ on your behalf to stay secure, or you can rely on your own works in order to stay secure as God's children. It's either works of the law or hearing by faith. It can't be both. And Paul drives his point home and he makes a sharp distinction between works of the law and faith by asking a handful of rhetorical questions. He starts in verse 2, look at it. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, was the Spirit a reward for your spiritual achievements or is the Spirit a gift you received simply by hearing and believing? Of course, the Galatians knew that the Spirit was a gift. They did nothing to earn the free gift of the Holy Spirit. And with that admission, Paul could build his case by asking in verse 3, Well, are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In that phrase, by the flesh, it should call to mind the physical rite of circumcision, which the Judaizers taught was required to be a part of God's family. They wanted the Galatians to adopt the works of the law as a guarantee that they could stay in God's family. But Paul is trying to explain to the Galatians that if they started by grace through faith, that they should continue on in the same way, by grace through faith. In other words, the way into the Christian life is the same way on in the Christian life. It progresses the same way that it started. We don't begin with faith and then end with our good works. It's faith in Jesus from beginning to end, from A to Z. Paul wants the Galatians to hold fast to the gospel. He wants them to keep their gaze on the image of their crucified Savior to stay focused on Jesus. And Paul wants them to also understand that they're not only saved by the gospel message, but they also grow by the gospel message. The Galatians are both justified and sanctified by faith in Jesus. They don't earn any of God's acceptance and love because of their good works. Those things only come through faith. The real question Paul is trying to settle for the Galatians is this. Who is a part of God's family? Bottom line, who can be a part of God's community? Who belongs? And the Judaizers, they come along and they ask the question in a different way. They would ask this. Who's a part of Abraham's family? Who gets to be a part of Abraham's family? In their eyes, if Gentiles wanted to belong to God, then they needed to become children of Abraham. To be a part of Abraham's family meant you had to be circumcised and to adopt all the Jewish cultural traditions and customs that circumcision represents. That was the Judaizers' argument. Okay, follow me here. It's why Paul talks so much about Abraham in chapters 3 and 4. It's because the Judaizers made a big deal of being tied to Abraham to be a part of God's family. And the Judaizers loved, they loved to go back to Genesis 17 where circumcision was instituted. It was their proof text when it came to convincing Gentile Christians to adopt works of the law. Well, Paul knows this. And so he comes along and he takes them back even further to Genesis chapter 15 into the promises God made to Abraham even before he was circumcised, even before he knew about circumcision. The case Paul makes here is really genius. He reminds the Galatians of Abraham's story where God asked Abraham to go out and look up into the night sky. No city lights, no air pollution in the middle of a desert. You could imagine the scene that he's taking in. And God promises Abraham that his offspring will be more numerous than all the stars in that night sky. The billions and billions of stars. And how did Abraham respond to God's promise? Well, Genesis 15 says that Abraham heard the promises. And even though he didn't know how it could happen, even though it seemed impossible, he had faith in the one who made the promises to him. And the scriptures say he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, remember the question on the table. Are you saved by works of the law or simply by hearing with faith? And Paul answers this question by reminding the Galatians that God counted Abraham righteous by simply hearing with faith. God justified Abraham before he had even heard about circumcision. 
hundreds of years before he had even had a law to obey. He didn't even know what those things were when God saved him. Circumcision and the law, they weren't even in existence. In fact, Abraham was justified when he was an uncircumcised pagan Gentile. There wasn't even such a thing as the Jewish people then. And if Abraham was justified by faith, this is the payoff punch for Paul, that's how his children are justified too. The Judaizers, they loved Abraham. And so Paul calls Abraham over as a witness who would agree with him. Paul's making the case that physical descent does not matter. Spiritual descent does. So the question should be, do you have the same faith as Abraham? Not have you adopted the same customs or traditions as him. It's not about works of the law. It's always been and will always be about simple hearing with faith. That's how we're accepted by God. It's how we continue on in the Christian life by turning our gaze to the picture of Christ crucified and simply believing what we hear and what we see. The Galatians show us that we are prone to miss this. You and I are prone to forget the gospel. We develop gospel amnesia on a daily basis. The gospel, it just leaks out of us. We can't really hold on to it the way that we should. And when that happens, when the gospel leaks out of us, we are prone to adopt other gospels, other messages for how we can get along in the Christian life. Paul knows this, and so he invites us this morning to refocus on the picture that he's painted. It's only as we walk in the power of the gospel that we experience joy and excitement. I mean, just think about the fact that there is no difference allowed with the Judaizers. No difference allowed. They want everyone to adopt the same cultural customs and traditions, to look the same. They want their community to be uniform, to be sterile, to exalt duty and parameters and rules. But with the gospel, differences can be celebrated. Creativity is essential. Joy is a main byproduct. It reminds me of the movie we watched this past week as a family on Tuesday night, knowing that school was canceled the next day due to all the ice we had on the ground. We watched The Giver. And for those of you who have seen the movie or read the book, you know that initially everything is in black and white. You might call the world in the movie very legalistic, very sterile. Everyone was expected to fall in line and play their part for the repressive regime that they were under. But as the movie progresses, the main character who gets free from those constraints, he begins to see color. And as the main character breaks free from the repressive community in which he was raised, he tastes freedom and he begins to have the capacity for love and for joy. That's because love can only flourish without legalism. Look, with legalism, love isn't really required because everything is earned. No grace is needed. And it's why Jesus hated legalism because it nullified his grace and it hindered real love from blossoming. Legalism leads to a community of no joy, no life, no beauty, no creativity, no grace. You earn what you get and you get what you earn. Legalism is really all about control, controlling who's in and who's out, controlling people's behavior, controlling God's approval, controlling our lack of control. At one point in the movie, the main character gets to experience a great party and there's dancing and music and good food and drink and lots of color. And after he experiences that, he asks, why would anyone want to get rid of this? Why would anyone want to get rid of this? 
And Paul is pleading with us. Those who have tasted freedom don't go back to the law in order to find joy in life and excitement. It can't be found there. Paul is so frustrated with the Galatians in our passage because he can't understand why they would ever want to go back to that kind of slavery. Look, now I understand how this could cause some questions for those of you who are wondering how we're supposed to relate to the law. And I'd say stick with us because Paul's going to begin to address that as we progress through his letter over the coming weeks. But for now, it's worth noting that the law is good, that it's true, that it's beautiful, but that the law is lifeless. The law is lifeless. The law is not useful to make you righteous. Only hearing with faith can do that. The law will never justify you. You, We could say that Moses makes a horrible savior with all due respect to Moses. The law doesn't have life in and of itself. It has no animating force. It has no power, but the gospel message does. Jesus does have life and power in and of himself. The gospel is the power of God. It's a message that changes your life if you believe it sharper than any double-edged sword. The law can be really useful to break us. It's useful to drive us to Jesus as our only hope for acceptance with God. And then once we're driven to Jesus, once we believe through simple hearing with faith, Jesus can take us back to the law, not to bring us life, but simply as a pathway that can guide us in the beautiful and fulfilling and influential life. But here's the thing. You never stop relying on Jesus. Even when he takes you back to the law as a path, the Christian life begins and ends with the gospel. It's the gospel that brings the motivation to follow the paths that lead to our joy. The law is powerless. It's just the road. It's the path that we can follow. But the gospel news, that's the fuel. It's the motivation that compels us to want to walk in God's ways. Why do I love? Because he's loved me so well. Why am I a good spouse? Because he's been such a great spouse to me. Why am I generous with my resources? Because he gave up everything in order to come and find me. The gospel motivates all of these behaviors. You might say that the gospel is the gas that gives our souls combustion. We were made to run on 100% gospel fuel. And if you pour law into your gas tank, it might work for a day or a week or a month or as long as you're around people who you view as morally worse off than you. But after a while, you will grow tired and bitter at others and inflated with pride and angry at God. The journey always comes to an end when we try to run on law. You are made to run on the gospel. It's what Paul is pleading the Galatians to understand. So you started the Christian life by simple hearing with faith. Now what do you have to do to keep belonging, to keep your status, to stay accepted by God? Do you have to read enough books, serve enough, never miss church, raise great kids, always resist temptation, stay morally pure? You fill in the blank. In short, does God's continued love and acceptance depend on your work or on the work of Jesus? The Judaizers came along and they said, you got to let Moses finish what Christ has begun you got to add your works to the work of Christ. you got to finish Christ's unfinished work in order to belong. And when you're tempted to believe that, and you will be tempted to believe that, it's worth remembering what Jesus said on the cross. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross as he was about to give up his life, as he was suffering the wrath that our sin deserved? What did he say? 
Did he say, try harder? Say, be worthy of this. He say, adopt Jewish customs and traditions. Did he say, complete what I'm leaving undone? No, he exclaimed to Telestai, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus has accomplished the work. It's sheer folly to go back to the works of the law for justification. The gospel reminds us that it is finished and we never outgrow our need for the good news message. The Christian life begins, moves on, and is completed by faith in the completed work of Jesus alone. You don't need to redouble your efforts. You just need to rest more deeply in what Jesus has already done for you. It is finished. That is our good news, and all you have to do to receive it is simply believe. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. We thank you for your free, unmerited grace. We certainly didn't merit it. We know that Jesus did. And we are thankful that he passes that righteousness on to us simply as we hear and believe. We pray this morning that you continue to press the gospel truths, the gospel as a reality more deeply into our hearts and lives so that we might follow you and live with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.